OCN is the largest producer of events for mortgage professionals. We bring the action to you. See when we'll be in your area. Just visit us at www.originatorconnectnetwork.com. That's www.originatorconnectnetwork.com. We have more housing units per person and per square footage per person than we've ever had. We don't have a physical supply problem. We have a capital distribution problem. This is Gated Communities, where we talk about everything you're not supposed to talk about in the mortgage industry. Racial inequities have long played the U.S. housing market, yet only recently has the federal government moved to address one aspect of the real estate industry that continues to exacerbate the racial wealth gap in housing, appraisals. A new groundbreaking appraisal bias research based on the Uniform Appraisal Dataset, which was released by the Federal Housing Finance Agency last week, is the most comprehensive set of market appraisals in the nation. Today on Gated Communities, we have author of the report, Junia Howell, whose research was based on an analysis of over 32 million appraisals submitted to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac between 2013 and 2021. Howell has come on to tell us the key takeaways from this study and its most shocking findings. So thank you, Jania, for joining us today on Gated Communities. We're so happy to have you and that we finally get to talk about this study. So before we get into some of the findings, I'll let you kind of explain how this study came about and why it is, in fact, so groundbreaking. Thank you so much for having me. It's an, it's an honor to get to talk about this study and engage particularly with your audience, which is very, this is very applicable um, to what they do and, and how they think about it. So it's, it's a true honor of mine. So for a little bit of background, myself and my co-author, who I've written now multiple pieces on appraisals with, Elizabeth Corver glenn who's currently a professor at the University of Washington, or excuse me, Washington University in St. Louis, flip those words around, uh, the, other, the other one in the middle of the country. Uh, we have been working on appraisals now for almost a decade, and we have used lots of different data to look at how appraisers um, are unequal across racial lines, particularly across neighborhood racial composition. And we've done this through interviewing appraisers, following them around, watching how they actually do their work, looking at how they interact with mortgage brokers, uh, real estate agents, all those components. And then we've done it with quantitative data. So all the big numbers, which is really like where I love and my nerdiness comes out. It's, it's my thing. Um, and so we originally started working on this. We realized that this was a little bit after the crash of 2008 and the Dodd-Frank legislation, of course, had started to uh, combine with some other legislation that was already in motion. You know, legislation is never straightforward. It's always like 10 different bills that combine. But they were starting to nationally collect appraisal data. And us in our naivety, we're like, oh, this is exciting. Like, this is what we're studying. Like, if we could just get this national data, we could study this in the exact way that we want. We had all these questions. Um, and little <laughs> did we know that that would lead us to multiple years of trying to get that data and finding many um, roadblocks in the way because of privacy, technical issues, other things. In the meantime, we weren't just going to like sit around and not try to do something. So we used a lot of what we call proxy data for actual appraisals. So data looking at home values, looking from, you know, different points of view. So a 
homeowners own assessments of how much their houses were tax assessments, all those kind of things. And we did all these double checks. So we felt like we were getting pretty good data, but we didn't have the actual appraisal values. But because of that other data and other people's work that led to President Biden creating the paid task force in June 2021. And as part of that task force, they realized that us, along with other people across the country, were really wanting access, better access to the data that we had been collecting for a decade, but no one had looked at around these questions. And so in October of last year now, 2022, they released the first iteration or first public viewing of this data. So it's not all the details, it's not everything, but it was enough to do a comprehensive view to look at these questions. We have been studying it for a decade, but hadn't had the chance to use the actual appraisal forms that have been being collected nationally. And so when we were able to do that, we not only in many ways kind of reaff reaffirmed our previous work and found like, yes, the proxies we were using were pretty accurate. We're, we're finding common patterns. But more exciting in many ways for me is the data was a lot more recent. Our other data, data is often, you know, <laughs> a few years, even, even sometimes five, 10 years behind. But they released all the way up to 2021. And they're hoping to release within the first quarter of this year, 2023, the 2022 data. So there's a vision to have this data every year updated. And that enabled us to look all the way up to practically the present. Look at how the pandemic was affecting this. And so not only do we have a national comprehensive view we've never had before, we had a look at how the most recent housing boom was actually increasing racial inequality and in what ways that like the mechanisms that were happening or going on to make that happen. That's uh, yeah, absolutely fascinating. And again, I'm I'm so happy that this study came out. It really centers on a very, uh, as you know, a contentious topic, which is appraisal bias. And we have an audience um are those professionals that work in the industry. And of course, this is a very contentious topic to talk about. Bringing it up could go either way. You know, it's basically talking politics. And um, I think this will become the study that people start to refer to when they get to this topic um, to kind of point to specific evidence just because it, it is so fleshed out and there's so much data within it. So when people start talking about appraisal bias, um, a lot of us can agree that it has a uh, an unfair past, a, a past of discrimination, and it, it is rooted in a lot of racism, like much of the industry, kind of a dark history to it. So before we get into what the current data tells us and what happened over the boom, let's give a brief, a short uh, brief overview of kind of the history of appraisals and kind of more of like the loan process and how that worked out. So there was um, a specific person pointed out in the study. I think his name is Frederick uh, Babcock. And mm -hmm. Let's talk about why he's important to understanding the history of appraisals and underwriting. Yeah. Thank you. That's an excellent question. And sometimes I wonder, is it just because like I'm a nerd in, in all classifications of that word, right? Like I freaking went to graduate school for like a decade. I have a PhD. And then since then, I've just been in academic academia studying. So like by any definition, I am a nerd. Um, and because of that, um, but for my whole life, I've always been really fascinated about like the history of things and how things got started. And sometimes I'm like, is it just me? Um, so it might just be me. And you might be a listener who doesn't care at all how these things started. But I think even if you don't care about the logistics, it is really remarkable to reflect on the things that we just take for granted and realize that they weren't always there. And why that's so remarkable is it means they don't always have to be that way. 
And I think one example increasingly <laughs> is becoming evident to me in the classroom with students, which just makes me feel old, but <laughs> is that in their lives, smartphones have always been a thing. Email has always been a thing. And that like blows my mind again, because I don't think of myself as that old of a person, but I was out of college before I had my first phone. And so my reality of what that looks like in my life is so different from them, right? So that's something tangibly we all can feel and get. But it comes to appraisals, we just take for granted that like there's a way to evaluate how much a house is worth. And we don't spend much time thinking about where did that come from? How long has it been here? Why? Why? What logics do we decide this method versus that method? So in my nerdiness, that has been a process of unpacking that and digging that up again over the last decade as I've worked on this issue. And while there are lots of pieces like any kind of history that lead to it, there's this kind of momentous moment in the 1920s where appraising and for that matter, the whole real estate industry, excuse me, really starts to transform. Much like other industries at the time, there was a push to professionalize, to have a sense of like, we are professionals, we are not, you know, scam artists, like there are ways, there are methods, there, are, there there's logic to what we do, which in many ways is like really important. <laughs> like we all like that was going on in academia too. Professors are really pushing to have defined definitions of this is our discipline and this is how it's done. And this is when you can you know, say it's true versus not true because you did it the right way. You did it the right method. And so that's what's happening in the 1920s. And interestingly, this is where the intersection of the industry and real estate comes in with academia because academics at the time were really trying to understand why are some neighborhoods so different than other neighborhoods? And they actually started creating physical maps. And this is a little even before the 1920s. They started creating maps and, and color coding them and saying, okay, this neighborhood is like this and this neighborhood's like that. And lots of, they were doing it in England and in the US and all sorts of different Ways. And then they started to make theories based pulling from literally uh, social Darwinism and Genesis theories, theories that we now kind of socially poo-hoo because we know that they are rooted in some very explicit racist ideas. But they pulled on those theories and said, okay, look at these on inequality. Well, obviously, if you're this kind of person, you live in a better neighborhood and it's deterministic. It's like the way of the world that you are more involved, you live in this neighborhood. And being more involved means that you're white, that you're European, that you're middle class. And if you're not those things, then maybe if everything goes right, you might ascend to those kind of neighborhoods. But if not, you deserve to be in a less quality, less a spacious place. And that was what they were explicitly saying. So Richard Eli was the first academic who actually started like writing textbooks like this and putting it down. And he taught one of his students was Frederick Badcock. I, now I said his name wrong. Um, but this man that we're talking about, right? So he was directly influenced by the first man who even put these things down in the paper. And he was hired by the newly formed First Trade Association of Real Estate um, uh, uh, Industry, which is the same, uh, same association we have today, even though it's gone through lots of different names. So sometimes it's hard to trace, but it's the same large association we have today. They hired Frederick Badcock to write the first manual on how to appraise. And so he pulled directly from these theories about some neighborhoods were more important than others. He did a survey of the current methods and there were all sorts of methods out there. Some people were using what we now kind of refer to as a cost approach. Other people were looking at different things about the, the physical nature of the land. You know, there were lots of different methods and he circled in on one approach that wasn't that common that hadn't really been fleshed out. And that was the sales comparison approach. And he said, okay, this approach is going to be the approach that we're going to use nationally. And one of the reasons is it because in built in it was this centralization that not only was neighborhood or location really important, that phrase we now all know, location, 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 right? This is where it comes from. This idea that location is really important. 
but specifically who lives in that location. Again, that was directly from his training, from these academics that were pulling on these really racist notions that who lives with you should define how much your house is worth, how much the land under your house is worth. And so that's where we start getting this fleshed out understanding of what a sales comparison could be in a way where it uses past sales to define current price and specifically past sales in the same location. What's interesting is he writes this first manual and then a couple years later, uh, FDR gets elected and that really starts transforming our housing industry in all sorts of different ways. That would be a whole hour podcast in and of itself. Just that legislation that passed. But that that legislation created the FHA or the Federal Housing Agency, which then hires Frederick Bag- Bagcock. Today, I can't say his name for some reason. <laughs> and they hire him to make the first national This is how we appraise houses. And so that legacy becomes the legacy of how we appraise houses. Now, in connection to that, they had to figure out, okay, so there's the central idea that neighborhoods matter and that you have, and some neighborhoods are worth more than others. So how do we make sure there's a systematic way across the nation, all these very different cities, very different states, that they're evaluating that hierarchy equally and that they know from one appraiser to the next, which neighborhood is which, like where are the boundary lines? So that's when they actually started drawing maps that were based on those historical maps that were color-coded. But these maps were more directly related to the appraised values. And of course, also the closely related loaning assessments of is, is this neighborhood worth loaning to? Is it going to appreciate in value? And those things are so intertwined, it's super hard to disentangle all the pieces. Colloquially, we now call this like redlining or redlining maps. But in reality, It was a combination of federal agencies, local agency, industry actors trying to just create maps so that they knew how to apply this new national standard. And these maps typically, although not all of them, typically they had four different colors, grade A, which was green, grade B, which was blue, grade C, which was yellow, and grade D, that was red. And it wasn't just about the red areas that we now often talk about. It was actually almost... And more importantly, the green areas. So we're elevating certain areas and saying, these are the ones that are the most valuable. These are the ones that are going to appreciate the most quickly. And they almost exclusively, although not there are exceptions, they almost exclusively were white middle-class neighborhoods. And so that is how we built in a system of both race and location into the ways in which we decided that how we are going to evaluate land was to use this one national method of a sales comparison approach. Awesome. Thank thank you for that analysis. And that really tells us, you know, even though we don't use racial demographics today to place values legally, you can't do that place values on a home. But um, the sales comps and using sale comps is, is predominantly how appraisers do their jobs today. And it just kind of perpetuates this this cycle and this legacy that really started with, you know, segregation and, uh, you know, a kind of a dark history of America. And it just keeps building on itself. So, you know, w- I mean, speaking more on that and how it works today, do you believe that w- what are some good alternatives to using a sales comp uh, analysis? Yeah, that's like the million dollar question, right? right? Okay, so what do we do now? Um, That's the first question that we started wrestling with me and my co-author Elizabeth Corbett-Glenn when we started, again, working on this almost a decade ago. And if you read our publications, just like anything, I I don't know 
Um, if you don't publish things publicly, you probably don't have a trace of this. Thank God for you. But we do now in social media, right? So if you ever go back, if you're on social media to your old Facebook post or blog post, um, I imagine there are some that you wish just didn't exist, that you didn't put out in the world, right? And I don't wish any of my academic papers, and particularly my academic papers on appraisals, I don't wish they didn't exist. But it's very fascinating, just even as like a self interesting thing to watch our own evolution of the ways in which we thought about solving this problem. So if you've ever like picked up one of our pieces or now hearing this go back and pick up our old pieces, you might be like, wait, that's not the suggestion I heard. And like, that's because just like everyone, we're changing and evolving and thinking about this differently. So I would say, generally speaking, I would categorize how I think about changing this into two primary buckets. One of those buckets is how do we systematize the current approach so that we ensure we minimize individual or collective bias and elevate a more equitable system. So those suggestions include things like systemizing the neighborhood boundaries, first of all, just making them consistent, which they were trying to do in the 30s. And now we have data to do, but we still haven't quite done. Um, second, rethinking where comps are exactly selected so that we intentionally sometimes pull comps from similar neighborhoods that are racially different so that we're reversing some of this racialized processes that we put into the system. That also includes suggestions around systemizing how we even measure things like square footage. Um, if you've studied appraisals or look at appraisals from the industry perspective, you know that there is a lot of discretion in how things are measured, what counts as a basement or a finished basement, right? There's all these processes. So how we actually measure and arguably most importantly in this category is how we make adjustments for the comps themselves. So to get maybe a slightly technical, but hopefully most of your audience is familiar with this so it doesn't feel too far afield, the sales comparison approach functions by first selecting the comparable sales. Three to five is kind of the typical number, although recently there's been a kind of explosion of comps that you can pull given the technology advancements in this area. And then you say, okay, this is what it sold for recently, right? This is the amount. And then I'm going to make adjustments to that amount given how this previous sale might differ from my subject property or what I'm currently looking at, right? And so some of those adjustments are what I would call ratio adjustments, like the square footage, like how much was this per square footage? Okay, let me do a division calculation. And now how much this house should, the subject house should be per square footage. But others are additive and subtractive in ways that there are no current standards. So this house had a pool and this one does it. I think that pool is worth $20,000 minus $20,000. That house didn't have a fireplace, but this one does. I was told in my training, if it was five years ago or 20 years ago, that fireplaces are generally $500 plus $500, right? So if you look at those kind of pieces, and if you study this at all, you know that there can be a lot of discretion. And so there are ways that we can systemize that discretion because discretion added with the other cultural biases we have, we know kind of creates and perpetuates a lot of this inequality. But that all fits in that first bucket of systematizing the sales comparison approach and trying to figure out what are ways that we can maybe do this better. I increasingly in my own personal evolution, and as I've studied this more and looked at more in-depth questions and looked at more comprehensive data, I've moved more and more to the second bucket, which is saying, hmm, I think let's get rid of the sales comparison approach altogether and use a totally different approach. I think there are alternatives and I'm not the only one suggesting this, right? There are multiple people currently working on this very problem because again, this is a collective issue that a lot of people have seen from various angles. And it's not just from a racial inequality angle. There's issues within the lending industry that have created this. Of course, our booms and crashes of the last two decades have created a lot of questions about how we are not only looking at the current values of homes, but the projected values of homes. So all that to say, there are many options, some of which are pulling from 
countries who do it different than us and borrowing their suggestions, some of which are pulling from past or existing methods and adapting them. I am currently working on trying to create a hybrid approach that pulls together many of these different components. I'm calling it a lifespan approach. And in some ways, it's like a cost approach. But unlike the existing implication of the cost approach, which fundamentally still uses a sales comparison approach to define the value of a land, even if it defines the dwelling differently, my approach is looking at what what resources cost uh, went into building this? How many of those are still kind of there, if you will? So is the brick that was built here 100 years ago, is it still in good condition? Can it last for another half? Hundred years, and how much value might left be left here? Not, I'm not going to go into all the like logistical specifics right now, but it is a sense of trying to reconnect the value of the actual resources. That includes the human labor that goes into a building. That includes the physical materials as well as the infrastructure to have that building there. The the pipes coming to it, the sidewalks, all those kind of things. It is based on thinking about how can we make that the center of this, so that our connection of our supply demand of housing is closer to the actual supply of the housing and what we need as a community than a speculative investment that conceptualizes this as something that A, is always increasing and B, is connected to who is living around this neighborhood, which is what the sales comparison approach has or around this piece of property specifically, which is what the sales comparison approach has elevated. Wow. I think that, that your approach, the, the one that you just brought up, it really gives kind of a unique perspective on what home value is. It's like, this is value. It's not just looking at something that you believe is comparable, which is really up to the appraiser. It's looking at, you know, value in its realist terms, like the brick that's that the house is made out of. I think that's extremely unique. And I definitely want to get more into that. Um Another thing that um, appraisals are based off of is um, the the kind of communal resources within the neighborhoods, which also plays a huge effect on on um, home values. So in the study, it said uh, racist urban planning decisions have concentrated higher quality housing and communal resources in white neighborhoods. I want to ask, are better um, communal resources determined by how much is that? how much residents pay in taxes? Are there other things that contribute to that? Or is this the result of urban planners? Yeah, in that particular section, we are referencing particularly historical urban plans that were very deliberate. Uh, To use a personal example, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. And in my early 20s, I got very interested in like the history (laughs) of the city and how this happened. And again, I've already self disclosed myself as a nerd. So yes, I, in my spare time as like a 20 year old, went down to the archives of the city and actually like went to the physical plans that still exist in our city, which I just still think is like a phenomenal, cool thing. And literally looked at how our neighborhoods in 1925 were outlined. And they explicitly said this elementary school should have this many seats because of this, this, and this. And it was like the elementary school that I went to. And these streets, which are the like streets I grew up in, should be mainly lower class. And this is why they should be lower class. And they literally said, and we're going to zone around there, the factories, which in, you know, a hundred, not quite a hundred when I was growing up, but <laughs> several decades later meant that almost everyone, including myself, who grew up in my neighborhood, had asthma and other health um, issues because of the strong concentration of the environment or environmental hazards that were literally put by what they called lower class housing. So yes, and, and, and it is um, a majority black neighborhood. And that 
wasn't exactly true in the 1920s because of the development, but quickly became true. And because of the pushing of the black population into these so-zone lower-class neighborhoods. So yes, there has been very explicit action in various ways. In fact, if we look at the bigger history of this in our country, it started more with zoning, as I was just referencing, particularly at the turn of the century, the 19th century zoning becomes this like powerful tool that local governments in, in some ways discover to institutionalize and systemize segregation. We see this really explicitly even in California with the Chinese population and the ways in which zoning there was super innovative for its time. Also racist, but very innovative in how to define spaces as certain populations and not others. That then in the 1940s, after the revisions to the real estate age industry that FDR put in place with the 1934 National Housing Act, they really start then changing tax assessments. So if there wasn't a systemized way to assess how properties were valued pre-1934 in our country, which there wasn't, there was also no connection between tax assessments and our understanding of like property values or their market value. That happened after that time period. So really in the 40s is when that starts happening. So the 40s start this really direct connection between how much your property is worth and how much taxes you might be paying on it. Of course, that then leads into 1954, which is Brown versus Board or the desegregation lawsuit. And if you know this history at all, you know, right after desegregation started a process or a movement of resegregation by people physically moving to areas to isolate themselves into different school zones so they didn't have to be desegregated. So it was like, okay, we now legally can't segregate between schools, but we can still segregate between districts and particularly property districts. And so let's property tax property districts. So let's move to different tax property districts and let's deliberately draw tax property lines around race. And so that's what was happening in the late 50s and late and the early 60s. And so our current conception of property taxes as kind of gaining one's rights to having affluent schools and wonderful amenities is really a birth of a, of a pushback of our civil rights movement that was fighting for equality. And so I think it's, it's super ironic that it's another thing that we just kind of internalize. I know I have internalized for most of my life. Like, yes, if you're paying more property values, you should get more amenities. But particularly when you think about schools, it starts flying in the face of all the things we proclaim as a country. That is, we say that education is the pathway to a future. We say that we're the land of opportunity. We say that everyone who tries hard, who gets a good education should be able to see it in this country. So why then we are okay with an extreme extremely unequal school system that is justified by different property taxes becomes very interesting, right? Because it basically just put blinders on and says, okay, we can keep this myth that everyone can succeed while also ensuring that our actual structures make that racial inequality go from one generation to the next. So yes, in some ways, contemporarily, there are amenity differences because of property taxes. But the very reason that exists is an explicit racist understanding. And our way of justifying it and continuing it is also based on internalized racial systems that we have accepted and, and said like, well, it's okay that our schools are unequal because people are paying different amounts. But if you start unpeeling that logic, it quickly starts coming down to the fact that we're okay with some students having access to all the possible resources and opportunities that our country can give them. But we're not really okay with all students having access to that. 
Wow. I that is I just want to say that is the most in-depth that someone has went uh, on that question to give the full history of what's going on with communal resources, because I asked that question to quite a few people. And a lot of times they they fall back. Well, it's taxes, you know, and that but no one really has gone in depth like that. And I think that's a, that's a great explanation for what's going on there and how exactly that started. So I want to get into some of the findings um, in the study that were particularly shocking. Um, let's get to the the kind of like the main basis of the study, a very important point, which is the fact that um, comparable homes in comparable neighborhoods, homes in white neighborhoods are appraised at over twice the value as homes in communities of color. So what do you think? I mean, we just talked about sales comps and how that plays an effect. What about, I mean, racist appraisers in particular, because we have people whitewashing their homes and then they get a completely different appraisal. Is that is that just a racist appraiser? Is that more you know prolific? I, I want to get your opinion on that. Yeah. So I'm a sociologist. And when I think of the word racism, I think about it as its kind of original meaning, which tracing back to the 1920s is when that word really comes into English. Race, it comes into English back in the 1500s. So that has a longer trajectory. But the word racism comes in at this moment where the anti-Semitic hate is really at the rise in Europe. And there is an explicit political agenda in the U.S. to make us distinct from what's going on in Europe. But the history of that actual word always holds in tension what we would now in modern parlance call like a systemic or a structural, the things that have to do with laws and approaches and methods, all the things we were just talking about with the sales comparison approach, as well as how individual actors shape those laws, those methods, and apply those laws and those methods, right? So it's it's both and. And in many ways, trying to separate it is, is futile <laughs> because our laws were created by people and yet they govern people, right? So I, it's ironic for me to say it's futile because much of my discipline as a sociologist is always trying to disentangle these things so that we can address mechanisms and, and make solutions. And so in some ways, I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth and I fully recognize that. But the other thing is we we really do theoretically believe that they're very much hold intention. What's interesting is post-World War II, when we are once again as a country politically trying to distinguish ourselves from Nazi Germany and other what we see as hateful empires around the world while dealing with the civil rights movement and other pushes within our own country to say, hold up, wait, like we as vets just went abroad and we're treated better than we're treated here. Hold up, wait, you're going to send people all over the world to fight for freedom, but you're not willing to fight for freedom here, right? So that is the political discourse that's going on. At that moment is when this book, The Nature of Prejudice comes out, 1954. And it starts to really refine the idea of prejudice and racism as an individual thing. And it becomes a, I don't, the author of that, I doubt, I mean, he's dead now, I can't ask him, <laughs> but I doubt he had the a political intent for this to happen. Uh, maybe he did, I don't know. But what becomes is a tool for those who really want to stop talking about the broader changes to say, wait, racism is not about those laws. Racism is not about those bigger things. It's about an individual's intent. And that is actually what starts getting put into our laws. If you actually look, even the fair housing law, um, these laws that we have in the 60s that are in arguably some of our most progressive laws also have a very regressive idea that what makes something racist is an individual intent to do something, a, a bias against someone else. 
And many of us, that's the definition we've learned of racism is that definition. And so when we hear scholars or other people say, well, racism is structural and this and this and this, we're like, you're just making that up. Like, that's not what it is. But it's like, well, actually, that's what it originally was. And we changed the meaning of it. So, you know, we get, we got to, we have to hold that intention. So, so given that, I would say this is a very common um, implication of racism. It is both and, and in many ways, it is silly to try to separate it because it is both a system that was explicitly based on racist ideas. It has perpetuated racist ideas. It's increasing the racial inequality. We can empirically document all of that. And individuals implement it. Individuals go into a house and have to decide what this house is like, what other comps to pick, what additive and subtractive things, if this house is in good quality. And so, yes, in our qualitative observations, where we're actually watching appraisers, in the many examples that are now in the news, there is plenty of evidence that at times there is some what feels to us as explicit, even if it's unintentional, racist decisions being made by individuals. But if you do want to quantify it, if you do want to put some numbers on it, we can separate slightly. The methods for this are still a little fuzzy and we're working on figuring out better ways to do it. Most of it still is the method. There, proportionately, there's one estimate that's like 2080. So yeah, 20% might be because of the discretion of individual appraisers that are evaluating certain areas. And even if they don't think of themselves as racist, right? Like even if they live maybe in a black neighborhood themselves, even if they have come up from an indigenous family, but they've been taught that white neighborhoods are supposed to be more valuable. And so they might be evaluating a house because of the race based on that, even in addition to the method. But that is still only a part of the broader element that really is the method that we're using that's neighborhood level or area level from the sales comparison approach, racial inequality than just individual inequality. And so in that way, it's how the both kind of intersect and feed back in each other. And we have to address both of them if we're going to come to a solution. Mm -hmm. So taking so taking that, um, it's really about addressing the system and the approach to which these they do these appraisals um, more so than training the appraisers like to not be racist, as you said, it, they work. They both work together to kind of come out with this this flawed um, appraisal at the end of the day. But really, it's more so the system in which they're working in and what they've been taught and the the approach that they're taking, the method that they're using, more so than the person's individual uh, intention. Yes, that is completely what I'm arguing. And obviously, there are people who disagree with me and think the other is also a solution. But from my perspective, it's much more structural. We need to deal with the method. And of course, teaching people to do a new method also requires kind of explicitly teaching some of this history and teaching how they might implicitly be pulling in bias. But yes, I focus more on the method. And I think that the empirical evidence greatly supports um, that assumption. Awesome. Awesome. And I want to ask you, you know, another interesting finding in this study is that the the uh, neighborhood racial gap in appraisals has been expanding by 6000 a year. That was from 1980 to 2015. But in this last decade, the gap grew by 18000 a year. That is insane. What do you think is causing um, this this issue to suddenly um, accelerate so quickly? Yeah, this was honestly the most surprising and disturbing piece of this for me. Again, when we started this, I had looked at general inequality and a lot of different data up to 2015. So the general patterns that we were finding were just like, okay, good. The proxies I worked really hard to make sure were accurate proxies were accurate proxies, we're at one a good track. 
But then when I explicitly looked at the changes over this decade, that's not something I'd ever had data to look at before. And I was personally utterly shocked. I actually remember I was like texting. I have some academic friends that we, we, you know, like, like you do when you have friends and mine happen to be academic, like text various things throughout the day. Like I found this or this happened or like, can you believe my colleague said this? Right. And I remember texting them and being like, guys, guess what? And I like put all these findings in because I was so shocked. Like, this is, this is crazy. Like, this is not okay. Um, and so then I, so then I was like, okay, what the heck, how can this even be possible? What's happening? And so I started looking specifically at the inequality from year to year. So breaking down the decade, looking at it and the vast majority of it, is during the pandemic. There's a little bit before that has to do with some general trends that I would probably say are coming out of legislation that is was affected by Dodd-Frank and the, the changes that we see happening there. But the vast majority of the difference happened in the last two years of the data, which was 2020 and 2021. So this is pre-2022 when the market changes again, right? So we're sitting in 2023 and just watch 2022 and, and know that the housing market is not what it was. But if you just Put your eyes around 2020 and 2021. That is the epitome of this like boom that we had, right? So most of it is pandemic. So what was happening during the pandemic that created that? How do we disentangle it in the data? Of course, there's a lot of factors as anything, but much of this has to do with the inequality that we're seeing growing over decade over decade, because we're seeing it grow decade over decade since the housing reforms in the 60s and 70s, right? So we said like, oh, this can't be race. We can, as you already said, no one can explicitly put race in the form. No one is doing that. We are, I mean, maybe a few people are, but we are not accusing anyone that that is not what's happening. But we're seeing this broader inequality in these trends. And much of that is connected to the financial mechanisms. And this is where it's really helpful to understand that our logic around supply and demand, when it comes to housing, the supply and demand has way more to do with credit than actual physical buildings. In fact, you know, there's a a parallel conversation that needs to be held in tension to come up with good solutions, I would argue. And that's the affordable housing crisis that we're in, right? It's kind of started in the pandemic and it's gotten worse, renting, owning, all of those kind of components. And as part of that conversation, we often, often say there's a supply issue. In fact, actually just this morning, I was listening to an NPR story about the housing crisis in New York City and the mayor's decision to home, uh, to house unhoused people in hospitals, right? And it's very controversial right now. And there's all this like back and forth. And yet the whole discourse about it is we have a lack of supply of housing. But in reality, New York has more housing than they've ever had in history. They have so much housing that's just completely empty. In fact, if you look across our country, we now not only have more housing units than we've ever had in history, we have more housing units per person and per square footage per person than we've ever had in history. We don't have a physical supply problem. Mm -hmm. We have a capital distribution problem. Mm -hmm. We have made the housing such an attractive investment that people, for very good reason, buy houses as an investment. They have no plans in living it. Maybe they're using it as a vacation house or renting it out. But if you've studied the super high ends in big story cities like New York, and this is not exclusive to the US, obviously this is happening in Canada. It's well covered in Canada and other places too. There are whole apartment buildings that are over half empty because investors, not just from the US, but around the world are investing in these units and have no plans in anyone ever living. 
<laughs> so if we want to hold this intention with the reality that we have an affordable housing crisis, we also have issues with climate change. Now, you can think about that differently. You can come across that differently. But I would argue you can't deny the fact that we're having increasing storms and increasing extreme weather that is partially connected in many ways to our construction, like physically where we're constructing houses, not even the um, emissions that we're having. Right. So we have all these issues and they're all super connected and they're connected by the fact that we have incentivized a market that 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 connects the supply and demand of housing with the accessibility of capital and the ability to have return on that capital. But I would argue if we want people to be housed, if we want to thrive as a general community, we have to reshift that supply and demand from being one of capital to being one of the actual physical dwellings that people need to have to survive, to thrive, to be human. That is partially why, as we were talking about earlier, I've moved to a method that's thinking about how do we actually operationalize that? How do we actually make those connections? But when it comes to this exploding inequality that we're seeing in the last couple of years, particularly in the pandemic, a lot of that has to do is that we put all those mechanisms that have been happening for decades on steroids. First of all, the Federal Reserve decided that banks, that the amount that they had to keep in reserve for fractional reserve banking was zero. That is completely unprecedented. And I would argue fairly underreported. Um, obviously, it's reported, it's easy fight fact to find on the internet. But we didn't think about or talk about the fact that we just made the ability of banks to loan and reloan mo money almost infinite, making our supply of capital enormous, an unprecedented amount. At the same time, the Federal Reserve bought secondary mortgage securities off Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, increasing what they could buy, meaning that the banks also had more money to buy, right? So in every possible way, we increase the capital. And that's not even getting to the interest rate, which has been something more covered. So you had three mechanisms of the Federal Reserve simultaneously enacted that increased in an enormous amount the capital. And yet, because we have a system that ensures that capital is not equally distributed, nor even can a desire to buy in a place, a high demand of living in a place, can that even be reflected because of the comps, because we're pulling on these historical comps. And we know, because we've seen the data in Black and brown communities, even when there was super high demand in the pandemic, appraisers came back much more disproportionately under those lists or those offers than in white neighborhoods. So in white neighborhoods, you just saw the skyrocketing pricing values, partly because of the sales comparison approach and our system that justified that that could happen and should happen, and partially because of who actually could access that capital from banks and how we decide who deserves the capital. And so all of that together meant we saw this increasing racial inequality and class inequality during the pandemic because we have a system of housing where a supply and demand is connected to capital, which is deeply connected to an appraisal system that is still reliant on a racist hierarchy, as well as connected to the assumptions about who is deserving and who can pay back capital that is also its own racialized process. Mm -hmm. Because lending capital, as, as most people know, is very reliant on credit and certain groups lack credit versus, you know, the, the white population. But I want to ask because I... I you know, there was a lot of stimulus capital and you would think that there was because of the stimulus packages, the moratoriums and all of this, that capital was free flowing during the pandemic and everybody must be getting rich during this time or enriching themselves. But in reality, that's just not true because 
you know, in reality, your appraisers are still lower than the white person. And uh, you're not getting as much access to loans and to capital from banks as a white person, even, you know, if you are well capitalized, like there have been studies that show um, the black population is very well capitalized. They just don't have a lot of assets. They're very like cash heavy. And you know, they, they technically they do have plenty of wealth um, in themselves, but uh, opening up the door to with banks and, and things like that and getting loans and becoming qualified is, is much harder for them. So and part of that, you know, you, you started with credit, right? And the interesting thing about credit is for the most part, um, there are some exceptions, but for the most part, how we define credit is a big secret. <laughs> it's a it's a money, right? It's a, there's a business behind it. So as scholars, I, I don't, I do not specialize in this, but I know to do. And like me trying to get appraisal data, they've tried to get credit data forever today. <laughs> and because they can't get the actual data, they've used proxies. And it's highly likely that neighborhood racial composition, that where you shop, these other things are built into the actual credit equation that makes your credit a certain number. Because we cannot statistically explain the racial differences in credit scores just based on people's cash flow and who what they're paying, the things that we think credit is. That those don't explain all the variance. Telling us that there are other things in that equation, again, these are the, it might seem nerdy, but these are the really important elements that we often don't think about the actual equations that define credit, the actual equations or the method that defines appraisals. These ways that we systematize what is what are often the mechanisms perpetuating a lot of this inequality. Now, of course, not all of it. There's there's all sorts of figures and there's all sorts of other elements of inequality that are at play. But it's important, I think, in the mortgage industry in particular, to be critical of the actual methods that we're using to evaluate an individual's worthiness, a house's worthiness, a neighborhood's worthiness, because all of those methods have historically been built on racist assumptions and have not changed. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I I think what you're pointing out, you know, in this interview and throughout your study is that you need to take a critical eye to literally everything, you know, how you uh, it's true. You know, what what is credit? What what does a house value mean? And and all of these things. And I, I think it would, it really would open some people's eyes if they're if they're truly listening to this Um on, on, on how they look at the industry and the, the whole history of the industry. So I want to get to one point that I found quite shocking. Um, you know, throughout this podcast, we talk about black history um, uh, pertaining, you know, to mortgage banking and all of this stuff. And if you look at the history, the legacy of segregation, you say, oh, that makes that makes sense. It's not right, but that makes sense as to why their appraisals are affected today and why neighborhoods look like this today. But one of the shocking things from the study, um, you know, how anti-Chinese, and anti-East Asian sentiment mm -hmm. increased during the pandemic, which caused mm -hmm. their neighborhoods to decrease in value relative to whiter neighborhoods. And this must have just happened over the past two years, just from the COVID-19 pandemic. That's insane. And I, I just want to know, I mean, how did this happen? How did it happen so quickly? <laughs> yeah, this is another thing that I wasn't expecting. <laughs> I was really surprised by because we had national data, we were able to better disentangle various racial groups um, than we had in our previous study. Another thing that I was really excited about the Latinx and Black communities, there are some differences nationally. There are some, you know, there are some special exceptions in various metropolitan areas, but generally, Latinx and Black communities are very similar when it comes to us, even more similar than they are when it just comes to like their wealth or income measures. For Indigenous or American Indian Native Alaskan communities, they were 
so if, if Black and Latinx are twice, have their values are twice as small as white communities, the indigenous population is three times. So way less than that. Mm-hmm. And even less than that is the um, Southeast Asian and South Pacific communities. There's a lot of, that makes a lot of sense too. When you think about the history of reservations, the ways in which land has been taken, that there are still actually fully distinct laws for how you can appraise land when it's on a uh, a tribal nation than others and the ways in which we do and do not wrestle with that in an equitable way. So those are like the, the main groups that I was personally as a scholar interested in, knew that there was probably patterns there, wanted to unpack them. But of course, if you're going to do everyone, you're going to do everyone. And so then you're you're also looking at East Asian and Central Asian communities. Because of our previous research, we also weren't surprised that they are almost completely on par um, with white communities. But what was a surprise is this really interesting trend in the last two years, just during the pandemic, as you just said, with East Asian communities, which the majority of that is the Chinese population, where their home values relative to whites started to decrease in those two years. I was completely surprised by that. And honestly, with this particular data, didn't have much additional information to unpack exactly what was happening. And so I was doing a lot of proximations of like, okay, which metros is this happening? How is it happening? To fully flesh it out, the next step is we need to like actually get back in the field, see what's happening in those neighborhoods, see what's what's going on. But we make the connection because it, I think, is a very compelling one that there was an enormous rise, as we all know, in anti-Chinese and anti-East Asian hate during this time period because of the associations that were being made politically between um, COVID and the Chinese population. Obviously, there were some very high-profile shootings, high-profile muggings, you know, all sorts of really horrendous things. And it's very, very interesting that that then is reflected in this seemingly very distinct industry of housing appraisals. Again, not something that, that I would necessarily expect, but we know that when appraisers are having the art side of appraising, right? When they're having to estimate what neighborhood is this also like, or what is the trajectory? Is this neighborhood declining or increasing? My educated guess, but is honestly just a guess, is part of what's happening is they're assuming buyers are going to be less likely or willing to move into East Asian communities. And they're making that a part of their assessment. I would still call that a, a racist and racial racial assessment, but it probably had less to do with for most appraisers saying, oh, I don't like this area as much as saying, oh, recognizing the general push against certain communities and reflecting that in their appraisals. I think in many ways, given what they're asked to do in the current system, you could argue that is maybe the, the right thing to do. But morally, I think it just points to the fact that our appraising method has these inbuilt notions that then enable national conversations that we hopefully will collectively say, no, we shouldn't be hating a particular group just because there's associations between them and a, and a flu that has, or a, a, a virus has nothing to do with them. Like, you know, we can say that's wrong. And so we should make sure that we don't have a method that enables totally legally and maybe even rightfully so appraisers to then reflect that in home values. Yeah, I find that, 
you know, fact, particularly disturbing. We are, you know, you would like to think that we're such a progressive nation that we've we've learned a lot over, you know, throughout our history. And for something just to start completely on its own, you know, within the past two years, um, a bias that wasn't uh, necessarily there before is now there because of po- current politics is is insane to me. And and like you said, it, you know, the method needs to be addressed. It should not allow something like that to happen. It's, it, you know, it, and appraisals, appraisals in general are so complex. You know, it's it to obviously it takes tons of scholars and an evolution of ideas in order to correct what's going on. But, you know, I, I, I just find that particularly shocking. Yeah. And also just a quick aside, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, anti-Asian, particularly anti-Chinese hate is not new. <laughs> it's gone through different evolutions in our country. And this particular manifestation is an evolution and we see it reflected in this data. Mm-hmm. But as I already mentioned at the turn of the century, uh, zoning against Chinese population was the first successful racialized zoning in our country. Right. Um, not to mention that the first exclusion act when it comes to explicitly saying who could and couldn't enter the country was the first major immigration act period of excluding anyone was against the Chinese population. And arguably in hand with the Jap- Japanese gentleman's agreement, which is slightly different in its legal structure, but in its actual implications on the community was the same or in our nation, it's the same. So, you know, it's, it's easy to think like, oh, okay, because of, because of the laws that passed in 1965, that ensured that current waves of immigration from Asia, um, particularly East and Central Asia are disproportionately those who have jobs that we pay higher and value more um, affluently in our country, we have this kind of inverse negative, but also very stereotypical and problematic assumption. But there is a very, very quickly accessed lots of history and deep hate against those communities in our country. And it's important for us to, to sit with that and not just give ourselves the excuse of like, oh, we're progressive, we're getting better. If you actually look at our history, all these things, they go up and down and all over the place. In fact, we're just talking about these general trends. Appraisal gaps have gotten bigger since the 1980s every single year. That is not a progressive moving forward direction. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And yeah, it, again, it gives us it gives us a lot to think about. I know we're kind of reaching towards uh, the end here, but I want to um, talk a little bit about um, the lifespan approach. I know you kind of covered it in the beginning. I want you to go um, and, as in-depth as you would like on it and, and just kind of give us an, an idea of what you're proposing. Yeah, generally speaking. I am attempting, as I've already suggested, to ensure that we have a method of evaluating the value of a house that enables us to connect that house to the supply and demand of housing. That is one of the critical pieces of what I'm trying to do. Another critical value is trying to instill a notion of equity. Not that every house is worth the same, that's not my intention. You have a one-story, two-room house that's not the same as an apartment, which is not the same as a 4,000 feet mansion. Not trying to make the values of those the same. But I am trying to disentangle this, what I consider racist and historical notion that a home's value should be connected to the racial composition of those who live around it. And so in that way, trying to ensure that there is a method that is promotion, promoting race and class equity as well as regional equity. We haven't gotten into that and that's kind of a whole nother topic, but it's important that these are also connected. We know there's a lot of issues with rural appraising, right? Just the 
access to appraisers, knowing how to pull comps when there's not many houses around. The system doesn't, the system was built, built for our 20th century cities. It wasn't built for anything else. And when you try to take it out of our 20th century cities, if you work in those areas, you know, it starts to fall apart. Not only that, but if you're trying to move, even from a city like Kansas City or something to a New York because your work is taking you there, but you have for generations lived in Kansas City, all of a sudden you are going to be in shock of a housing values or a housing market that slowly appreciated for the people living there and can still, some of them obviously, right, can still afford while you are like totally locked out. So we are creating not only racial inequality, class inequality, but also regional inequality in our country by the way that we evaluate these things. And so attempting to address those issues and connect it to the supply and demand of housing, the approach is a component-based approach that looks at each piece of the physical structure of the dwelling. So the windows, the framing, the roof, the foundation, those are the components. And for each of those says, okay, when was this put in place? How much did it cost when it was actually put in place? Was that 100 years ago, 150 years ago, five years ago? How much did it cost then for both the labor and the natural resources, as well as the infrastructure to get it there, the sidewalks, the roads, all those kind of things? How long do we expect it to last? Do we expect it to last 10 years, 20 years, 200 years? And in good condition, right? If it was kept up, how long do we expect it to last? And then let's divide that cost across everyone who might ever benefit from living in this dwelling. So it's kind of a really radical way of rethinking how we're sharing this cost and how we're passing it along. Um, but what it does is enables for the majority of the cost of housing to actually shift from paying for a mortgage to towards paying for the upkeep of the house. And if you actually look at what actually costs to live somewhere, and I'm not, this goes for apartment buildings, I'm using house as a, a general word right now what really cost is maintenance. And if any of your listeners are also landlords, right? Like they know this in their bones, like the cost of maintenance to keep things up. is like, pull my hair out, right? If you're a homeowner, you know this too. Um, even if you got a house that was like, you know, turnkey ready and you were so excited about it. I don't, I don't hardly know any of my personal friends that within a year or two didn't have a cost that was like totally unexpected and not what they wanted in their life, right? And then you add all those up. That is the majority of cost of both for renting or owning, keeping it up. And so taking that into consideration, if we actually had the resources to keep houses up, they would last longer, would be less of an environmental cost. We'd have more good quality and affordable housing units. And so it is a way of mathematically looking at each component and saying, okay, how is this value and distributing across these things? Um, it also is... Uh, hopefully going to be paired. We're working on being paired with technology so that we can use things like object identification to be able to take a picture or video of something and help estimate all those questions. Because obviously, if you live in a house, you don't probably know when the windows were put in. You might know when the roof was put in or the, or, or the water heater or something like that. But was the foundation already updated? Those kind of questions we don't know. But we know about enough properties in that country that we can use the, the magics of in many ways of machine learning, of other models to say, okay, let's estimate these things. It doesn't, we'll never get to the perfect exact value, but let's get to an approximate value so that we can have a systematic and a consistent way, an equitable way of evaluating these things that is connected to our need to live and dwell and thrive in communities and not just to a speculative market based on capital. Awesome. I, yeah, I think that's a really unique and interesting idea for sure. And an interesting approach to think about. Um, before we go, I, I want you to kind of um, 
speak directly to the audience a little bit. Um, any appraisers that might be listening to this? Because as I said, our audience, our industry professionals are, you know, people, anyone really that works within the industry. Do you, I mean, when appraisers read this study, I imagine it's not a very positive experience um, to hear that something like this is going on in your profession. Um, and, you know, as just an individual, even if you that's completely not your intention is, you know, to to further this, you know, history. Um, what, what would you say to someone like that? What can they take from your study? Yeah. It's, it's never easy to wrestle with the ways that your life might be impacting these things, right? Either if you're an appraiser, you are a mortgage broker, if you're a real estate agent. I mean, another piece of this is, is real estate agents are using the sales comparison approach just as much as appraisers, right? And then they arguably are just as much and in some ways more uh, an actor that is perpetuating these notions. And so you know, anyone in the industry, that, that's not fun. But honestly, if you live in this country, especially if you own a home, but even if you don't own a home, even if you're paying rent, you were also implemented in this system, especially if you made strategic decisions about where and how to buy that are based off accurate because we created the system, <laughs> but a system that is continuing to increase this inequality that is making it more and more impossible for particularly for what we're looking at, people of color, but also along class. And again, as I already mentioned, regional and rural lines, rural urban lines, making it impossible for marginalized populations to have the same opportunities as others. And you might be on either side of that divide. And I, and I don't know who you are who are listening, um, but you have been affected by this, by merely being here. And it's never easy to recognize, especially when you see that you are either perpetuating or benefiting from a system that you're not trying to do, right? That's, that's never easy. There's been a lot of that um, in my life. It's, it's always hard when it's a personal friend telling you how they hurt you or a structural thing that you realize like, oh, shoot, I'm benefiting from that or I'm adding to that. Generally speaking, I encourage people, first of all, and this might sound silly, but I think it's really important to learn more about whatever it is and what specifically your role in it. So if you are an appraiser or you are on the, the lending side or you're on the real estate side, yeah, listen to podcasts like this, look, seek out other resources, learn the history, but also learn the present. Ask people from different experiences within your industry how they're perceiving this. Learn, learn what's going on and how your actual actions might be or might be contributing to it or fighting against it. Um, obviously, I am trying to innovate ways. And I would love and encouraging people to also innovate other ways to join me to join others who are working on this. Again, it's not just me, there are ways to innovate the whole system. And that can be something that you're interested in and, and kind of getting on the some of those teams around the country that are working on that creating your own thinking about your own solutions, or maybe that's not and that's okay. We can go back to that first bucket that I was talking about, about making sure that the current system that we have is as equitable as possible. And for you as an individual appraiser, that might be thinking through, okay, how do I make additive and subtractive decisions? Can I make sure that I'm making those more consistently? Can I take an honest look at who I take as clients, what neighborhoods I serve, how I treat those neighborhoods differently? Could I ask someone to help me analyze that and think through that and be a more objective um, voice that could help me think about those processes? Do I own a company or am I in the bank? And are we evaluating appraisals that are coming in? And is there ways that we can more systematically encourage our appraisals to be done or check those appraisers? So I don't think it's very helpful to just 
get stuck in the like, oh my gosh, the system is huge and everything's connected and I can't do anything. And so I'm just going to still do my same thing. That is the gut, what we want to do. But if you can think specifically about what your actual role might be and is, evaluate what you are doing and start to creatively think within what you are able and willing to do, how you might refine, alter your practices to better address these um, inequities. Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know, the people, if you're listening to this podcast, if you plan to read the study in the first place, you are somewhat proactive. You're on your way to being a proactive individual and not just burying your head in the sand and being like, well, this issue is too big for me or I don't believe in it or anything like that. You've already taken the first step. It's going to be on your conscious, you know, so it, you're more likely to do something about it. It's just about taking practical steps in order to get there and, you know, to promote progress, like you said, and and to share it with other people and share your perspective on things. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast and going so in-depth about this study. I, I really, we're going to promote it on our website and everything like that. I, I really think it's going to be the study that people refer to when they start talking about appraisal bias and, you know, because of the extensive amount of data that's within it. So thank you for explaining some of the findings that were in the study and for going so in depth on it. Um, We've really enjoyed you. And I feel like you could just go on forever about this, which is just amazing. I love that. Guess- it's probably true. That's, that's why I always have to be like, how long do you want me to because yep. we got at least we got at least 20 hours off the cup if you want yep. them. <laughs> yep. So maybe, you know, maybe we could do an article about this. You could come back another time. I definitely learned, you know, learned a lot from you. And I think you have a lot to say, which is always amazing. It's always perfect to have that in a guest. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for everyone listening and trying to learn and trying to innovate. It's those that's where the real change is going to happen. And I'm always very grateful um, to know and to get to meet people who are are thinking creatively and, and implementing things in their own spheres of influence. This is Gated Communities hosted by me, Katie Jensen for the Mortgage News Network. All episodes are produced by TG Kudem Peror and Matthew Mullins. Our head of multimedia is Mike Savino and our editor-in-chief is Christine Stewart. Make sure you subscribe to Gated Communities so you get future episodes and be sure to rate and review it so others can find it. The song you heard at the beginning was Wild Side by Saint Society and the song you hear now is Will You Dance With Me by La La Nia. This podcast is copyrighted by American Business Media. Mortgage Women Magazine. It's where women's voices are heard. Find it free at www.mortgagewomenmagazine.com.